Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast, episode 166. Uh, my name is Andrew Dunkley. I am your host, and joining me is astronomer at large, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello. I'm trying to think of what might be magic about the number 166. And, well, it's, apart from the fact that it's quite close to my age, um, um, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just another number, really. It's just another number, yes. Mm. yes. We're right. a little way off 200, so we won't even start planning that yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking we should do it from the International Space Station. That's just I'm a sure thought. somebody could arrange that for yeah, us. I think it would be easy. <laughs> now, we've got a lot to talk about. As usual, we are going to look at life on the moon. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. And Maybe. it's not something that everyone's happy about. Uh, we also are going to find out what's inside a neutron star. Neutron stars have strange habits of doing things like slowing down and speeding up and then going back to normal speed again. They think they know why now. And a few questions. What is opposition? What's the difference between astronomers, cosmologists and astrophysicists? And what's our address in space, in the universe? We have an address, as it turns out. We'll answer all those questions on Space Nuts today. But let's start with the moon, Fred. There is life on the moon, uh, but there's a uh, bit of a caveat to this one because it's, it's not native life. It's um, something that was put there. Yeah, that's right. It's a very interesting story. So what's the life that we're talking about? Uh, it's um, part of a package of, uh, I guess, what you might call genetic material to give it its widest possible, uh, you know, widest possible coverage, which was sent to the moon on a spacecraft, uh, which you and I talked about, uh, the Israeli spacecraft, um, which was sent there by a private concern. Um, it's uh, was the aim was that it would touch down softly on the moon, uh, but sadly it didn't. It crash landed uh, on the moon back in April. Um, the spacecraft, I'm sure I'm not s pronouncing it properly, but it looks like Bereshit or Bereshit. Um, that was its name. Well, it's Put certainly Shiet now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Quite so. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. This is a family show. Yeah, well, I'm stooping again. <laughs> Actually, no, there's nobody in the right mind would let their family loose on this show, <laughs> would they? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, a lot of... Um, uh, a, a lot of uh, Israeli effort has gone into it. As I said, it was a private, privately funded uh, spacecraft sadly crashed on the surface of the moon. But what we found out is that it had on board, um, as I said, genetic material, including animals which are, they're not, these are not microbes, they're proper little animals, but they're the toughest things we know about. And no, they're not cockroaches. 
Um, they're far more cockroaches. They're far, yeah, and they're far cuter as well. Um, so, so I know about these things because um, I, I, they make a big appearance in one of the chapters of Cosmic Chronicles, uh, the new book, which, by the way, went to the printers yesterday. Woo-hoo, exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so anyway, that's another story. So they are called tardigrades, otherwise known as water bears and occasionally as moss piglets. Uh, I like that one. Yeah, that that. You know, they're not the kind of bear you'll ever have to run screaming from because they're, uh, even though they've got eight legs, they do have eight legs, each of which is equipped with claws on the end, but they're only half a millimetre long. They look like something out of Doctor Who. Yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah. Uh, So uh, moss piglets, I think, is a more descriptive name because they they love to live in moss or lichens. Uh, and they do look like piglets, and they've got these really smiling faces, apart from the fact they haven't got a mouth or any eyes, but they've got puffy cheeks that make them look incredibly cheerful. Yes. Um, so everybody loves them. The they're, they're super tiny, like um, half a millimetre. Half a millimetre, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, they swim around with eight legs. Which, which in American speak is really tiny. Very small. So That's I don't right. know what half a millimetre is in Imperial. Uh, it's a, a wait a minute um a fifth of an eighth of an inch <laughs> <laughs> i used to know these things yeah it's oh, no, small no. uh it's look it's not that small but it's small yeah it is uh, it's uh well let's let's do the calculations half a millimeter is a 50th of an inch there you are no yeah, oh, i wasn't far off no you weren't far what did you say a fifth of an eighth <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> 25.4 millimetres to the inch is the magic number, and so half a millimetre is uh, about a 50th of an inch. And that's all we've got time for. for it is, <laughs> that's right. But um, they, so yeah, going back to the tardigrades, uh, what makes them interesting uh, and why we talk about them in the context of astrobiology and spacecraft crashing on, on the moon is that they are incredibly tough. Um, they can go into this state which is almost like suspended animation they can dehydrate themselves so that they contain virtually no moisture now of course water is the is the working fluid of all life on earth so if you take the water away what have you got well a corpse yeah Um, but i think you only need tiny tiny quantities of uh water in the bodies of these things and they're going to um, this uh, suspend, as I said, this suspended animation uh, state, which uh, that, uh, makes them basically just t- t- curl up into a ball, mm. um, which has a name, which I'm struggling to remember at the moment, but does, doesn't matter. But these 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 are basically dried out tardigrades. But when you drop them in water again, they just sort of say, "Oh, that's great!" Come back to life and start swimming swimming around. And the reason why. We know they're hardy is that there was an experiment done a number of years ago in which tardigrades were let loose on the outside of the International Space Station and survived. um, I can't remember the exact number of days. It is in it is in Cosmic Chronicles, but I've forgotten the number Um, and brought back in again and, you know, rehydrated. And a significant fraction of them survived. They came back to life. Many didn't. But um, quite a few of them did. And, so, th- so they were exposed to the vacuum of space. Indeed, that's right. Uh, and the ultraviolet radiation as well of space. So all uh, the stuff that would kill us, they survived. Yeah. Uh, I remember when um, the journal, you know, the learned journal Nature uh, published an article on this and the headline was, uh, no spacesuits needed for these creatures. Mm. Uh, 
which I thought was quite nice. So, so they they can withstand the rigors of space at some level. I don't. It's not foolproof. I think, um, as I said, it wasn't all of them that survived. Maybe the ones that survived were shielded from the ultraviolet radiation of the sun or something like that, but they did survive the vacuum of space. Um, and some of them went on to produce perfectly normal offspring. So, because these are animals rather than microbes, so they actually, you know, they, they, they do reproduce. Um, so uh, tardigrades have been thought of as, you know, potential um, uh, ambassadors of, of life on Earth on other worlds. And the Israelis have rather jumped the gun on this because it actually does contravene the laws of planetary protection, which you and I have talked about before. Yeah. Um, the tardigrades are apparently encased in resin, uh, something a bit like the amber that we used to find, uh, sometimes find um, um, ancient prehistoric insects in and things of that sort. Uh, so so uh, the fact is nobody knows what's happened to them. The, the spacecraft, uh, when it impacted the moon, almost certainly um, blew itself into pieces. Uh, and the tardigrades may have um, remained intact in that uh, conflagration or explosion or maybe not. We don't, we don't know the answer to that. And most, well, the people involved are, are suggesting they, they probably are alive. That, that's right, or at least in their dehydrated state. State, yeah. Yes. Wow. Uh, so that is a possibility. We don't know how long they'll last, and neither do we know, you know what the prospects are of somebody going to pick up the pieces to find out what's happening up there. be worth a look. Uh, it would be worth a look, that's right. And, uh, you know, it's really rather an interesting, uh, uh, rather an interesting scenario. Even if... Israel did break international law in doing what they did. Apparently they did, that's right. Mm. Uh, allegedly. Okay, well, um, I suppose we just have to wait to find out, and who knows if ever we will go and pick up the pieces and, and see if they're still okay, or some of them. <laughs> and, I mean, it's just one of those things that's been left there to... Um, be wondered about until one day someone stumbles across it, perhaps. We'll find out. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what was that spaceship supposed to do if it had landed properly? Um, I think basically um, it was to form a permanent um, kind of memento to humankind, which is why it's got all these, you know, this archive of human history and oh. uh, some human DNA and things of that sort on board. But it would have clearly, you know, sent back images and um um, obs uh, scientific observations to as which well. people would have replied, yeah, been there, done that, seen that. <laughs> yeah. Hasn't changed colour. Yeah, no, it hasn't. But no. there are, there's a, still a lot to learn about the moon, is. Andrew, and we, we, we remain fascinated by the Earth's nearest celestial neighbour. But right now there is life on the moon, we think, and we put it there and we shouldn't have. Shouldn't have. <laughs> Sorry, I was being a bit Australian then. And, Australian, um, yeah. Yeah. Shouldn't have done that. No. Uh, so uh, we watch with interest. We may never find out, but hopefully one day we will. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here and Fred Watson there. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I 
particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Space nuts. Now, Fred, to the fascinating topic of neutron stars. These are quite small objects, but they are really dense. I mean, you ask them one plus one and they just shrug their shoulders. They are very, very dense indeed. And uh, now it seems rather accidentally uh, some Australian scientists have um, figured out what they're made of, because they have these strange habits, don't they? They do. So um, neutron stars were first observed as what are called pulsars. Um, and pulsars are, they were thought at first to be little green men. They were discovered by Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who we had the pleasure of hosting here in Australia last year. Um, but what, what, they, what pulsars are, are basically very highly repetitive bursts of radio, radio radiation, um, sometimes only a millisecond long, but repeating on that sort of time scale, quite different from the fast radio bursts that we've talked about before, which are a total mystery. Uh, neutron stars are known to be the result of these crazy, highly compressed stars, which beam out radiation from their magnetic poles, and they rotate very, very rapidly. And so um, the, the radiation acts almost like a lighthouse beam. It sweeps out through space. And when the Earth is in the right position relative to one of these things, we get these, these um, succession of, of blips of radio radiation. Um, they, the great thing about them is that they are incredibly regular. Um, but it has been known for it's many all the years. the fibre they eat, Fred. That's... That's... <laughs> <laughs> you didn't uh, think I could stoop you, any lower, but... I was, you know, I, uh, you know, well, you know, well, just keep eating your prunes. You'll be all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, so they're very, yes, they're very regular. They, 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 these bursts of radiation are actually more accurate than atomic clocks wow. in terms of how regular they, they keep the time. Except 
that once in a while they experience something that is technically known, and this is true, it's technically known as a glitch. Um, they speed up slightly and then slow down slightly and then speed up back to the original speed that they were going at. This mm. is like, a, you know, uh, go slightly faster, very briefly, slightly slower, very briefly, and then back to normal. Where and we're talking just, like periods of seconds? Yes, I think so. Oh. Um, I am not a, a pulsar specialist, but I think they're relatively short periods of time when these glitches occur, which is kind of why they're called... Uh, why they call glitches? Yeah, the, the the particular one that's been observed that we're talking about today, the whole thing lasted 13 seconds. Wow! So they, yeah. they, you, know, you you are talking about events that if you blink, you'll miss them. We had a glitch at the radio station a couple of weekends ago that lasted two days. So yes, that's right. <laughs> um, so and the, you probably never came quite back to the normal speed, which the pulsars are very good at doing. Um, so what causes the, the pulsar phenomenon? It, it's, as you said, it's neutron stars. And neutron stars are basically the most dense uh, and gravitationally intense thing next to a black hole uh, because they're the result of a star collapsing on itself uh, so that the only thing that is withstanding the huge gravitational pull of uh, a star's worth of material the only thing that's stopping it collapsing to a black hole is the pressure of neutrons, that all the neutrons are jostling together and they can just overcome the, the self-gravity of this thing, which wants to pull itself into a black hole. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, the, the situation with neutron stars, a mass of uh, a whole you know, a whole star like the sun, in fact, usually more massive than the sun, compressed into something 10 kilometres or so across. It just beggars belief, the, yeah. the density of, of the It would material. be like your car running out of petrol and then collapsing in on itself to the size of a pea. That sort of thing, yes, yeah. except I think it might be more like the size of an atom. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> um, because it's such a, you know, it's such a, a, a different state of matter that we're talking about. Now, um, theoreticians, theoretical astrophysicists, they study uh, what might be inside neutron stars and the structure that seems to fit the physics and seems to fit what we observe is um, this, uh, an internal... Um, fluid of neutrons that that in the middle it's a, almost like a liquid uh, but it's neutrons as i said pressing you know pressing up against each other mm. so the laws of physics that they these neutrons obey are quite different from what a liquid would obey but a liquid's a, a you know it's a, a good enough term to use to to get over the idea that it's not just a solid mass of neutrons that they can move around uh, relative to each other but on the outside of it there's a crust um, a sort of hard crust and that is where the intense magnetic fields play out that actually cause the, the, the material to beam out and give you the, the effect of the, the pulsar so um, that's the the theoretical structure uh, of the uh, your average neutron star um, but the idea of the glitches uh, what what makes them is something that has puzzled astrophysicists for many years well, i suppose when you've only got like 13 seconds to see this it would be very very hard to detect yeah exactly so it's the the, the observers of pulsars over the years have have spotted these glitches we we know that they happen but you know finding one and predicting it, well, that's a bit different. Mm. So what's happened is a team uh, which includes uh, astronomers from 
at Monash University, which is down in Melbourne in Victoria, and from the University of Tasmania, which is uh, even further south than Victoria. Um, they uh, used a radio telescope, which is actually in Tasmania. It's at a place called Mount Pleasant, which is very pleasant indeed, uh, just outside the city of Hobart. It's quite a big one. It's a 26 meter diameter radio telescope. So it's not, you know, it's not um, a piddling little thing. It's got a reasonable amount of sensitivity. And they watched one of the one of the brightest pulsars in the sky, which actually our observatory, the Anglo, the former Anglo-Australian observatory, uh, had quite a lot to do with it. It's in the constellation of Vela. <clears throat> Uh, Vila, if I remember rightly, is the sail uh, of the ship Argo. Uh, it's in, in a southern constellation. Uh, and Vila, uh, we know, has the remains of a supernova in it, an exploding star which generated at the end of its life uh, a cloud of gas which we can see and detect. Uh, we can see it in visible light and detect it uh, with radio radiations, as well as this neutron star beaming out its radiation at the centre. Mm. Uh, it's it's called the Vela Pulsar. And the reason why we had a lot to do with it at the Anglo-Australian Telescope in Coonabarabran, this is back in the 70s possibly, or certainly the 80s, I think it might be the 70s, um, was because... Uh, the Anglo-Australian telescope was the first telescope to observe this pulsar in visible light. We could see it flashing. And um, that, I think, was only the second optical pulsar ever observed. My, <laughs> and my you've wife's got, just and poked you've got a visitor. She's been oh, yelling out hello for the last five minutes. <laughs> Say hello to the space nuts. Hello. There you go. That's my <laughs> wife, Judy. She's, she's left gone. in disgust. I don't wonder. <laughs> So, um, so uh, the yes, as I said, there's a connection with uh, with the optical astronomers of whom I, I guess I'm a representative. Anyway, the astronomers uh, were very patient with this uh, telescope, and eventually, they observed a glitch uh, and and observed it in enough detail that they could build a model of what's happening ah. uh, and that model has now been published in the um, you know in the learned journals of astronomy in fact nature which we we mentioned just a few minutes ago um, the idea is that as as i said a minute ago the neutrons are just sort of squashed together so they do behave like a, a liquid um but there there are quantum effects and that turns them into something known as a superfluid, uh, which doesn't behave like normal fluids do. Uh, lots of funny little, you know, whirlpools, uh, eddies, vortices, that kind of thing. Uh, and the suggestion is that you've got l different layers of this superfluid within the rotating neutron star. And sometimes the, 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 the stuff in the middle actually gets flung outwards to hit the hard crust of the star, and that makes it spin up faster. And then there's a sort of catch-up which slows it back down again, and eventually it returns to its normal speed. Um, one of the... Uh, sounds, actually, sounds simple, really, when you think about it. Yeah, <laughs> All that mystery and it's just, you know, a thing. It's a thing, but, of course, you, you know, when you... When you're doing these things, you don't just pull ideas out of the woodwork. No. You, you're looking at uh, what the mathematics of quantum physics predict um, might happen to, to, to a huge mass of stuff like this. Um, anyway, it's uh, excited uh, pulsar and neutron star astronomers 
And I think what everybody wants to do is wait for the next one so that there might be another glitch that maybe would confirm the theory that has been built around this. Yes, because as you and I have discussed, see it once, maybe it's something, see it happen twice, aha, aha Aha moment. That's what we're waiting for. But uh, it certainly seems like uh, we've got a bit more of a clue about how these neutron stars behave and why they do the things they do, which is, um, you know, a rare thing when we get an answer (laughs) to something that's happening way out there. (laughs) Exactly. In neutron star astronomy, the the difficulty is asking the question because they're so bizarre. Yes, they are. (laughs) Very, very strange indeed. Anyway, we'll wait and see if they can catch another one very, very soon. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, before we move along to some questions, I need to shout out to Carrie Brown. Carrie is um, uh, someone who's asked us a couple of questions in recent times. But she she came to me the other day and said, I want to start a um, Space Nuts podcast group so that Space Nuts uh, fans can all talk to each other, which I thought was a great idea. So I, I, I went to our producer, Hugh, and before I could even ask him the question, he messaged me. This was the very next day and said, I'm thinking of starting a Space Nuts podcast group. And I said, well, you need to talk to Carrie. And so they've spoken to each other. And now we have a Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, and it's called the Space Nuts Podcast Group. So um, if you would like to join and talk to other people that listen and maybe get to know some of the uh, the Space Nuts that have uh, been following our, our podcast for so very long, uh, find the Space Nuts Podcast Group and ask to join. Uh, I'll say yes, I don't care. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to vet everybody, but um, I think most people who'd want to join a group like that are pretty genuine Anyway, so um, yeah, have a look for it, the Space Nuts Podcast Group on Facebook and, uh, and join up and, and get to know some of your fellow Space Nuts. And while you're at it, uh, maybe have a look at um, the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Space Nuts. Fred, we have now got 37 patrons who are, um, who, who are supporting our podcast, which I think is fabulous. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who, uh, who's been willing to spend a couple of dollars a month just to um, throw into the coffers so that we can keep going. Uh, we didn't ask for this. Uh, it was an idea from, uh, from one person, and it's sort of grown from there. So it is fabulous. I really appreciate it. And so, so does Fred and uh, everybody involved. So um, it's fabulous. Now, Fred, we've got some questions to get to. Hi, Andrew and Fred. I wonder if Fred might be able to get my head around the astronomical term opposition. Uh, If something is in opposition to the sun or the moon, is it on the opposite side of the visible sky or is it on the opposite side of the planet? That's a question that's come from Denise Chalinor. Hi, Denise. Thank you. That's a great question. It is. It's a, it, it is a great question because it goes to the, you know, the basics of observational astronomy. Uh, and the answer, usually what it means is when an object is on the opposite side of the sky to the sun. So, for example, when Jupiter is in opposition, uh, it means that as the sun sets, Jupiter rises. So um, I, I would have witnessed an opposition this morning when I was on yes, my way to work. I saw the, the moon setting and the sun was about to rise. That's right. So we call that kind of, we give that sort of opposition a special name. We call it full moon. Um, there you are. That, yeah. In a sense, though, um, Denise's questions 
she, she said exactly what it is. Is it on the opposite side of the visible sky? Yes, um, uh, which means that um, often, you know, when you see Jupiter, when it's at opposition, you can't see the sun because it's below the horizon. It's at night time. That's fine. But it also means that uh, exactly as she says in the second bit of a question, is it on the opposite side of the planet? Yes, it is, because our vantage point is from the planet. So um, we're seeing it on the other side of the planet. But it really means it's in it's opposite the sun. Um, so uh, the the the. the I was going to say the opposite, which is the wrong word, but the antithesis of opposition is something called conjunction. And that's when two things are close together in the sky. Uh, so opposition is when something's opposite the sun in the sky. Conjunction can be either something being close to the sun, uh, and that happens with Jupiter as well when it's on the other side of the orbit. Or you can talk about the moon and a planet being in conjunction or a planet and a star um, things getting close together in the sky are called conjunctions. And if so, you look at them for too hard and too long, you get conjunctivitis. Divitis, exactly. That's where it comes from, yes. <laughs> oh, gosh. You see, we do everything in this show. We do medicine yeah, and hocus-pocus and mumbo-jumbo. Pity it's all rubbish, it's Andrew. A, there's a lot of mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> it's the most important thing on the planet. Keeps us sane. Yeah. Mm, okay, so um, I think we sorted that one out. That was pretty easy. Indeed. And it kind of leads into the next one, because what I was about to say was that that is basic astronomy is what we've just been talking about. Okay. So now you go to the next question and people will understand why I mentioned that. Now, this comes from Dan uh, of Gorakan, but he formerly um, lived in Dubbo, which is where I am in central western New South Wales. And uh, there's a bit of personal connection between uh, Dan and myself, as it turns out. Uh, hi, Space Nuts. Thanks for creating such a brilliant podcast. Is he talking about ours, Fred? Um, the way Fred can explain mind-bendingly complicated ideas and concepts in such, a, in, in such simple terms, he's a simple man, uh, is a true and rare gift, and Andrew's humour often makes my sides hurt. Makes a, mine hurt as well, Dan. There's a for that. There's a pill for that, Dan. I recently played um, my mother an episode to which she replied that she knew Andrew quite well as his children attended Rainbow Cottage where she worked in the office. I think I know who he's talking about. I, I, I've got a picture in my mind. Um, mm. I was hoping Fred could explain the difference between astronomers, cosmologists, astrophysicists, etc., as I feel as though I, I have underestimated what an astronomer does. Space Nuts is the be best podcast on the internet by far. Dan only listens to one. But, uh, yeah, thank you, Dan. We, we appreciate it. Good question. It is a great question. And it's one that, you know, I'm glad has been asked because we've never talked about this before. No, not really. Um and, you know, we we see when we watch the media, we see these different terms that are used to describe people. Um, whereas once upon a time, we would have all been astronomers. Uh, the word astronomer actually, well, astronomy, the, the science comes from, it's Greek, I think, uh, astro is star, nomo is number. So it's about numbering the stars. Uh, which differentiates it from astrology, which is uh, when you break it down into its Greek, it's it's words about the stars. Ah. So so um, astronomy technically means counting the stars, but actually, of course, it means anybody who studies the stars. Now, in the uh, 1860s, the late 1860s, we could suddenly 
work on the physics of the stars by uh, analysing the light from stars. It was um, a man called William Huggins, who was a, an English astronomer. He uh, basically invented the science of astrophysics because uh, he devised the way that you could break down the light of a star and reveal its component elements and the physics of what was going on there. So that was, that was when astrophysics was born. And then, you know, a lot of people started calling themselves astrophysicists. Um, my... I don't know. I always think astrophysicists, uh, when I hear people introducing themselves as an astrophysicist today, it sounds slightly pompous to me, uh, because basically what you are is, a, is an astronomer who's, who's doing physics. Um, so most, of, most astronomers are astrophysicists as well. Um, so, you know, you needn't necessarily deline delineate yourself as, oh, I'm an astrophysicist. Well, to, to drag our program even lower, the current <laughs> bachelor on the Australian version of the show is claiming to be an astrophysicist and um, I think he runs a petrol pump. I don't know. I'm just... Going that's uh, that. that's slightly. Um, uh, I, I've read a little bit about this gentleman, uh, and yes, he did study astrophysics, uh, but he's not doing it at the moment. No, but he has no. an interest in he's a check uh, or something. Planetary, uh, yeah, I can't remember what he's doing, but he's <laughs> planetary. He seems um, like a nice bloke. Don't he does. He seems like a, 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 I, I should I should explain, Andrew, that I've never seen the show that he's part of, but I did see a news item about him, and I thought, yeah, it, it looked like a, a I'm nice. I'm going by the promos. Yeah. Well, you're watching the wrong channel. That's your problem. Anyway. Probably channel surfing. <laughs> so uh, an astrophysicist is in, in many ways just an astronomer, but with, you know, with a fancy title. Um, and, the, and the same is true, I guess, with the other specialisms within astronomy. So you get to more and more specialist ideas. So a cosmologist, um, which Dan's asked about, is somebody whose special field is the origin and evolution of the universe. That's what cosmology is all about. Um, an astrobiologist is somebody who's interested in the origin of life and how life might be found throughout the universe. Um, but, they're, but they're really all lumped under the heading of uh, astronomers or if they, feel, if they feel so inclined, astrophysicists, because they're pretty well astrophysicists as well. In real so, terms, all jokes aside, an astronomer is more of a broad spectrum role maybe that's right and that so i've always called myself an astronomer because i you know i i, I try and do a bit of everything um and astronomy is is the topic that um, has fired me up since i was a kid with a with some fairly big helpings of space science as well which is now a different branch of it you know 100 years ago astronomy included studies of the planets as well but now that has become space science or planetary science um, the, the, the topic has broken up into its, you know, into its sub uh, its subcultures, if I can put it that way. Fantastic. All right. Hopefully that um, solves your dilemma, Dan. And thanks for um, asking the question. Say hi to your mum for me. Uh, tell her the kids are doing well, by the way. They are really flourishing. Very proud of them. Uh, so we'll move on to our next question. Uh, hi, Fred and Andrew. How are you both? I hope you're well. Yes, we are. Uh, end of the question. That was the question. <laughs> I, uh, he says, I've just signed up as a colonel on your Patreon account. So uh, a very worthy cause, I think, he says. So thank you for that. Oh, we really appreciate it. Um, I have been interested in physics, astrophysics, particle physics for a very long time, but only really got into it once I read Stephen Hawking's popular published works and started listening to Space Nuts and Space Time, our sister program. 
uh, with Stuart Gary. I am interested to know what kind of exact address from Earth in terms of where we sit in the galaxy, speed and motion, and then the local group, Virgo, supercluster, outside our supercluster, obviously, and any nearby voids, super voids, and how those things may be moving and if the universe itself is turning, spinning, as well as expanding. Now, that's a question I've never thought of. Is the universe actually spinning while it expands? Um, so that that is the question. Um uh, anyway, please let me know when you can uh, put it on the show. Right now, Andrew, Andrew Mortimer, <laughs> that question comes from. So, um, yeah, he's asked uh, quite a, a cluster of, a super cluster of questions, really. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, it's a, you know, it's a good question because um, our, our picture of where we are depends really on the framework that you're looking in so yes we we can easily identify our position on the surface of the earth uh, by latitude and longitude and that actually means that um, we've we've got a speed as well a speed of rotation about the earth which is actually around about uh, 1600 kilometers per hour on the equator at the latitude where we are um, Andrew, it's roughly 1,450 kilometres an hour. We're going eastwards at that speed. And, of course, the nearer you get to the pole, the lower the linear speed is. So we're already um, talking about a movement that we don't feel, um, oh. and that's because of gravity. And and so on, then you can say, well, all right, the, the Earth is the, is the third rock from the sun. Uh, it's orbiting around the sun. It's got an orbital motion, which is about 30 kilometres per second. Uh, so the the Earth moves through its own uh, through its own diameter in about seven minutes at that speed. Um, it takes you know it's, it's pretty fast. Yeah. So relative to the centre of the solar system, we're also moving. We've also got a you know an address, <clears throat> and then we are in a different place relative to the centre of our galaxy. We're about halfway between the, the galactic centre, <clears throat> excuse me, and the outer boundary of the disk of our galaxy, this disk of 400 billion stars uh, and gas and dust and other stuff. Uh, so we, we are also rotating about the centre of the galaxy. And our speed in that context is round about um, three, sorry, 250 kilometres per second, roughly around the centre of the galaxy. So you've got this picture of, you know, the, the, the us moving on the Earth, the Earth moving around the sun, the sun moving around the centre of the galaxy. And there are other motions as well, um, relative to big clusters of galaxies and, and voids, which is, um, you know, what the question uh, was about. But I, I would tend to sidestep all that because there is a, a really interesting sort of fundamental um, motion that we can measure. And it comes about because of the way we see things in deep space. Now, you and I have talked before about the cosmic microwave background radiation, yep. which is the flash of the Big Bang. And it's in all directions and uh, is really very uniform all around us. What, what we're, What's happening is we're looking so far back, we're looking so far out into space that we're looking back to a time when the universe was still glowing. Uh, because the expansion of the universe, that glow is now in microwaves rather than in invisible light, but it's that's what it is. It's still, when it set off on its journey, it was blindingly uh, white light. Now it's microwaves. So we're in the centre of this sort of bubble 
it's an optical illusion, in fact, but we can see the cosmic microwave background radiation all around us. And it's an optical illusion because you're looking back to an earlier time, which, you know, has long gone. Uh, but what you can do is you can measure um, the sun's motion relative to that background. Uh, and that is a really fundamental number. It tells you that we're moving through space and what we're moving through is something that might you might call the standard of rest of the whole universe because it's the it's the, the, the in a sense the the you know the, the the glow of the big bang which might represent something much more fundamental than the center of our galaxy or anything like that uh, we're, and we've got a motion relative to it and it is round about 368 kilometers per second um, so that is probably the sun's, actually, that's the sun's velocity in, in re respect to that. So that's probably the most fundamental address in a way that you can give. It's not an address in terms of a place. It's an address in terms of speed. Mm. Um, and um, I think, you know, I think that's quite a, a fascinating uh, piece of information that we're actually moving with respect to cosmic microwave background radiation. What does it mean? We don't really know. Of course, you could have saved yourself all that effort by simply telling Andrew to go and listen to Monty Python's Galaxy Song. <laughs> Would have said the same thing. Indeed, it says the same, but it doesn't mention the cosmic microwave. It doesn't. But um, the other question, <laughs> part of the question was, is the universe spinning? Um, well, it might be, and that might be what we're seeing with that, um, you know, with that, uh, origin. The problem, the problem with a concept like that is, what's it spinning relative to? Yeah. Um, and if the, I mean, universe by definition means everything that you can observe or or see. Um, and we throw the term multiverse around these days, which kind of flies in the face of what a universe is, because a universe is supposed to be everything. Mm. Um, so, uh, working out whether it's spinning or not is a is a it, it, it doesn't really have any meaning. If we do find that there are multiple universes, and there might be evidence for that comes from somewhere within the next few decades or so, if we could prove that and establish it uh, conclusively, then we might be able to work out whether we are spinning with respect to these other universes. That would be interesting. We don't know. No, we don't. But we do appreciate Andrew's question. Uh, yeah, he he right. had plenty more to ask, which we've put in the too hard basket. Uh, the uh, We'll get back to that shortly basket. Um, but thank you, Andrew, for the question. Thank you for your support on Patreon. We appreciate that. And thank you to everyone who's contributed to today's program and uh, to everyone who's uh, who's downloaded and listened to us. We, we certainly value that greatly. That's what it's all about. And thank you too, Fred. Uh, another great program, and uh, we appreciate your time. It's a great pleasure, Andrew. I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Oh, I'm thinking next week. Oh, gosh, that's a good idea. Why don't we do that? We'll give it a try. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Fred, and we'll see you soon. That's Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again. We'll see you soon on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.